What do Parasites, Resumes, and Patreon have in common? Pretty much nothing. But we're going to talk about all of them today. This is Episode 9 of Shifflet Welcome, welcome, welcome to Episode 9. Crazy that it's Episode 9, right? I mean, I've been talking for seven hours. If you binged listened to this podcast, I would be talking for seven hours. Now, I hope, from the bottom of my heart, that you listen to this podcast at 1.5 speed. I listen to almost every podcast at 1.5 speed. It's just better. It saves me time. Um, they talk too slow anyway. I know I talk slowly, but yeah, please do yourself a favor and listen at 1.5 speed. So I want to check in. How is the podcast going? And honestly, I think it's going swimmingly. Lately, I've been hypomanic, like really hypomanic, brain racing, wanting to start new things, wanting to be impulsive, can't stop, new, different, better, more, new, different, better, more, new, different, better, more. <sighs> and it's exhausting. It's really exhausting. But what I've been doing is I have been pouring all of my creative energy into this podcast. Literally, I'm I'm it's gushing out of me. I'm pouring it into this podcast. And I think I'm dealing with my hypomania for like the first time in my life in a healthy way. I think this is a healthy way of dealing with my hypomania by finding something that's not destructive, something that's not harmful and pouring myself into it. Am I podcasting too much? Maybe. I keep adding things, like long-form conversations. I want to do these long-form conversations twice a month. So I just released one yesterday. It was a bonus episode with my friend Kelly Clark. If you're Catholic, go give that a listen. It's fascinating. If you're not Catholic, go give that a listen. It's fascinating. <laughs> Kelly's awesome. And I had a really great time sitting down with her and chatting. Um, but yeah, I keep adding things. And I I, I, I guess I wanna, what I wanted to say is I want to do more of these long-form conversations where I just sit down with someone for an hour or two and chat about anything everything, whatever they want to chat about. I'm open. I'm open. So I'm adding new things. I also started a Patreon page. Do you know Patreon? Patreon is a page, it's a website where you can go and become a patron of different things. So um, people are creating stuff People are making stuff. People are making art. People are making podcasts. Um, I, I don't know what's on Patreon. 
most of the stuff that I subscribe to on Patreon is podcasts, and you have different tiers of memberships, and you subscribe, you become a patron, and then you get bonus content. So for $5 a month, this is not a sales pitch. You absolutely don't have to do this. In fact, don't do this, because it would mean that I have to spend more time making content. But if you want to support the podcast, you absolutely can go over to patreon.com slash shiflicast. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go to patreon.com slash shiflicast. I'm either using reverse psychology or I'm going all Lemony Snicket on you. Remember how Lemony Snicket, the author of A Series of Unfortunate Events, used to begin his novels with like a prologue that said, you are going to hate this novel. This novel is full of tears and sadness and no joy. Um, it was kind of like an anti-prologue, an anti-endorsement. Well, whatever it is. So uh, for $5 a month, what do you get? You get a bonus episode each week. I'm going to start making episodes with friends. So I'm going to sit down with a friend every week and just for like 30 minutes, nothing crazy. And what we're going to do is go through some quote-unquote very important questions. Some of these, they're conversation starters, essentially. Some are whimsical, some are thought-provoking. But um, I just thought it would be fun to sit down with people and have a conversation. It's another way to have a conversation with people, but um, in a kind of fun way. So for $5 a month, you get those weekly bonus episodes on Saturday mornings. Patreon.com slash Shifflecast. Okay, I'm going to shut up about Patreon. How is the podcast going? The podcast is going swimmingly. I'm still working out a rhythm. Um, I, I've pretty much settled on this format. Mondays is a reflection on the Sunday Mass readings and something Catholic. Wednesdays, I'm going to work my way through the Oscar winners since 1992. This is kind of random, but I've always wanted to watch all of the winners, the Academy Award for Best Picture. I've always wanted to watch all of those films since 1992, which was the year I was born, and kind of get a sense for how the culture is going and where the culture is going and what kinds of conversations are we having and, 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 and all of that jazz. Um, so on Wednesdays, I'm going to review, each Wednesday, I'm going to review one film. And my review is going to be very short and very accessible to anyone who has not watched the film. Because I don't want you to have to feel like, oh my gosh, I can't listen to a third of his podcasts because I haven't seen this movie. I don't want you to feel like that. So, my review is going to be very short and then I'm going to have some kind of reflection that um, springs from the movie. 
So, for example, today on the podcast, I am reviewing the 2019 South Korean film Parasite. It won Best Picture in 2019, and it will serve as the basis for a pop culture reflection. If you've seen Parasite, then you know that the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie are just filled with violence. And so today I want to reflect on violence in entertainment media and and how does a Catholic approach violence in, in television and films. So the movie really then is simply a springboard for a reflection on a deeper topic. So that's what I want to do on Wednesdays. I want to review a film very briefly and then reflect a little lengthier on some kind of topic. And then Fridays is for the news. Both Catholic and secular, but mostly Catholic. I'm, I'm thinking this through. And I think secular news is a lot of politics. And in this world, people get enough politics. Church news is so much more satisfying. The ecclesiastical goings-on is delectable. And, um, well, it's the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And there are people involved, and so there's going to be news. So that's the rhythm that I'm getting into for the podcast. I have a little bit of listener feedback. I have seen two, count them, two instances of babies listening to my podcast. I was sent a picture by a friend of mine from Idaho. Hello. I don't want to uh, give away your identity, so I won't say your name. But you know who I'm talking about, and a greetings to you from Southern California. She and her husband are listening to my podcast together on their smart TV, and I have a wonderful picture of her and her newly born baby um, in front of the TV with the logo of the podcast in the background. It's just precious. And then the other, the other baby is my own adopted nephew, not by blood, but um, sometimes, yeah, I, and I didn't literally adopt him, but I'm, I'm part of the family, and, so, and they call me Uncle Phil. And his mom sent me a video of my podcast playing in the car, and uh, he was trying to figure out where the sound was coming from, and I don't think he does that for other things that play in the car, but he heard my voice, and he was he was just trying to figure out where it was coming from. Where's Uncle Phil? Uh, I heard from several other people that they're enjoying it. I inspired one person, maybe two, uh, if you count my dad, to start their own podcast. So, yeah, that's that's kind of exciting. And then I want to read a message that I got from a friend. Quote, I really enjoyed your pod. Honestly, I did. I always thought fat people were fat because they just were too gluttonous and lazy. But you gave me much more perspective. 
As someone whose weight has fluctuated, I kind of see it now. You have food addiction. Unquote. Yeah. To the listener who wrote in, who who wrote this, I'm I'm really grateful that my podcast kind of opened your eyes and got you thinking about new things. Um, another person told me that my podcast on the vaccine mandate uh, got her to think about new things, new things that she hadn't thought about, um, different ways of putting ideas and thoughts together. So I think it really is going swimmingly. Let me talk very, very, very briefly about Harry Potter. This is the gist. I was doing, up until now, one chapter a week. And if I did three podcasts a week, that would take us until April of 2023 to get through the entire series. Now, that is just ridiculous. We are not going to spend now until April of 2023 going through Harry Potter. For all we know, the eschaton could come, and uh, Jesus could come again in glory. And then, then what? Then what? Well, then hopefully we will be purged of our sins and enjoying the beatific vision. But we wouldn't have gone through Harry Potter, I'll tell you that. So instead, we're going to start doing two chapters per episode, and that'll take us through August of 2022. This August, eight months from now, that is much more manageable, and um, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Two episodes, two, two, rather, two chapters per week. Last thing, I want to plug another podcast I don't do this often. <laughs> it's only episode nine. I've never done this before. I don't do anything often. It's only episode nine. Um, but the podcast is called In Your Embrace. And it's hosted by my friend Matthew Knight. Matthew Knight is a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. He is studying to be a Roman Catholic priest and he studies at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. And he has a podcast. And honestly, his podcasts are amazing. I get so much out of it every time I listen to it. And it's just a joy. He has some really deep insights. And he goes through literature in ways that put my analysis to shame. Um... In every way, his podcast is better than the one you're listening to now. So in the spirit of Lemony Snicket, abandon Shifflet Never listen to it again. Pour all of your time and energy into In Your Embrace with Matthew Knight. All right, on the other side of the break, we're not going to talk about Parasite, not quite yet. We are going to talk about a book that was just published and that I am in. Today, on one of my breaks from work, I went to the store and bought all three copies of a book that was published just today. This book is called Rezoom, R-E-Z-O-O-M, 
by Susan Pierce Thompson, and I truly believe that it's going to change the cultural conversation around food addiction. It is, I had a chance to read it. I actually proofread it, helped with a team of proofreaders, and I really think it is a brilliant contribution to the annals of food addiction literature. And I'm not just saying this because there are three whole pages in the book devoted to my own personal experience of weight regain and the lessons that I learned during those awful months. During these awful months? I don't think the awful months are quite over yet, and that makes me sad. But what makes me happy is the book Resume. I bought all three copies that Barnes & Noble had, and I'm going to read an excerpt for you today. It's the section of the book that I'm in, but first I'm going to let you in on a little secret. People at work don't call me Philip. People at work call me JP. And they don't call me JP Shiflet. They call me JP Schiller. Now, when I first started getting involved in the Brightline Eating movement, Brightline Eating's online support community was housed in Facebook. It still is. We're trying to get out of Facebook. The end goal is to be on an app entirely, completely our own. But for now, Facebook is the best that we can do. And I didn't have a Facebook account at the time. In college, I wrote my senior thesis on the philosophical nature of friendship and social media's role in its cultivation. And I felt strongly that social media was ah, breaking down friendships and not allowing friendships to flourish and deepen and thrive. And so I wasn't on Facebook. But I had this dilemma. I was starting a new eating program, diet, food plan, whatever you want to call it, way of living. And I needed the support. I needed people around me who were also doing Brightline Eating. So I created a Facebook account. But there, here's the catch. I didn't want anybody in real life following me. I didn't want it to turn into a social media profile of Philip Shiflet. I, I just, I didn't want that. I didn't want to see what people had for breakfast I, I, ironically, since I was uh, joining a weight loss group, but I, you know, I didn't want cute pictures of cats. I just, frankly, I had no interest in that, and I didn't want people friending me, and so I did the one thing that I thought would remedy that. I picked a different name. I picked a pen name. I picked a pseudonym. How did I come up with J.P. Schiller? Well, my name is Philip Jeffrey. The initials are P.J. So what I did is I swapped P.J. P.J. turns into J.P. And it's also um, a little homage to John Paul II a pope that I hold in high esteem, saint, 
Pope Saint John Paul II. Pope Saint? Where's the emphasis? Uh, so I switched my initials, PJ, to JP, and then I took my maternal grandmother's maiden name. My maternal grandmother's maiden name is Schiller, and I appended that to the name JP. And Schiller is close enough to Shiflet that it's, you know, just passable. It's not J.P. Schiller, Philip Shiflet. It's not too far off. So I took this name, and I became kind of popular in the Brightline Eating community. There are not a lot of men, and so men who have men and men who have a lot of success um, kind of rise in notoriety. Uh, I don't mean that to, like, toot my horn or uh, any kind of egotistical way. It's just kind of the nature of that community. If you're a man who's having really good success and you're posting about it, people are going to get to know you. It reminds me of high school. In high school, I did the morning announcements. Every single person on that campus knew me. I didn't know a lot of people. I mean, I, I was in a class of 660 people. I, uh, you know, I, I knew maybe an eighth of them. But everybody knew me because I did the morning announcements. And in Brightline Eating, everybody knew J.P. Schiller because uh, he lost 135 pounds. And he did a vlog with the creator and founder and CEO, uh, Susan Pierce Thompson, and, um, you know, just things were going great for J.P. Schiller, and the community heard about it. And it's a super, super supportive and loving and just amazing community. Um, they will love you up, and they will hold you when you're down, and everything in between. When I applied... So fast forward to July of, did I say I was going to make this a short story? I hope not, because I certainly did not um, come through with that promise. But fast forward to July of 20, don't do math on the air, uh, 2020, July of 2020, they were hiring for a customer support associate, and I applied. I applied to be a customer support associate at Brightline Eating. Now, I had a decision to make. Everyone in the Brightline Eating community knew me as J.P. Schiller. I wasn't trying to hide anything. To the people I was close to, I, I was honest. I was like, hey, J.P.'s not actually my name, um, but I kind of like the name J.P. because uh, I like John Paul II, and... It's just, it's easier at a coffee shop because there are so many different ways that you can spell Philip. Um, somebody spelled Philip with an F one time. It's like, no, 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 honey, no. Uh, but there's only one way you can spell JP, literally JP. So I had this dilemma. Do I apply? Well, I applied with my legal name. But when I got the job, I asked the powers that be if I could 
continue to go by J.P. Schiller. The community knew me as J.P. Schiller. Um, the staff knew me as J.P. Schiller. Everybody knew me as J.P. Schiller. Of course, there were legal things and 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 stuff with HR that, you know, um, pay stubs and taxes and all of that has to be in uh, my legal name. But we made the decision for me to continue going by J.P. Schiller. So if you write into the Bright Lightning support team and you get an email back from a JP, that's me. If you go on the about page on brightlineeating.com and scroll down, you'll see my picture and underneath JP Schiller. Not trying to hide anything. It's just how the community came to know me. And to be honest, I've really grown to love the moniker. I've grown fond of it. It's, um, in a sense, it's become part of who I am. I don't think twice when a coworker calls me JP. It's just like, oh, they're talking to me. That's kind of cool. So, all of that to say, this book came out today. Going back, going back like seven minutes ago, a book came out today. And by today, I mean yesterday because I'm recording this yesterday, and the day I'm recording it is today. It's yesterday's today, and today's tomorrow is when it's released. Time is funky. Time is super, super funky. Um, but anyway, the book came out on the 28th. I'll just use the date. On Tuesday the 28th. And I'm in it. I'm in it for about three pages. And it's marvelous. It is a section called Weight Regain. And, um, you know, Susan approached me and said, do you want to, I, I want to write a section on Weight Regain. Can I include your story? And I said, yes. And um, it's three pages. Well, two and a half. I'm looking at it here. Two and a half pages. I am going to have to explain just a couple of things so that you will understand what I'm talking about. Because I'm going to read this excerpt, but some things um, need a little more elucidation. So I talk about the four bright lines. And in Bright Line Eating, if you listen to my podcast on food addiction, you'll know that the four bright lines are no sugar, no flour, three meals, and weighed and measured quantities. Those are the four bright lines. So um, when I talk about lines one and two, I'm talking about no sugar and no flour. And when I'm talking about lines three and four, I'm talking about meals and quantities. The second thing you should know is that SPT stands for Susan Pierce Thompson. Susan Pierce Thompson is the author of the book, the founder of Brightline Eating, and um, a friend of mine. The phrase crystal vaser means somebody who has never broken their abstinence. 
somebody who has never broken their bright lines, somebody who's following the program perfectly. All the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. Bright lifers are the community of bright line eaters. We called this community bright lifers. And the final thing is resume. What does resume mean? Well, it's just like the word resume, R-E-S-U-M-E, but faster. That's why it's spelled Z-O-O-M, resume. You are literally resuming quickly. That's what it means. It means to resume. So when we talk about resumes, we mean attempts to get back on plan. And with that, here is an excerpt from Resume, the powerful reframe to end the crash and burn cycle of food addiction, written by Susan Pierce Thompson and Everett Considine. For the first seven years that I led the Brightline Eating Movement, I carefully avoided the subject of weight regain, which is unlike me. I usually square my shoulders to hard subjects and address them head-on. Honestly, I didn't even notice that I was avoiding this subject because I spoke so often about my initial regain in Australia. But that was framed as the darkest hour before the dawn. The dawn of years of glorious, unbroken commitment to my four bright lines and losing all my excess weight for good. Problem solved. I could talk about my one big weight regain in the past, but I couldn't address it as a present-day reality in our community until the courage of J.P. Schiller. Here's the story of J.P. Schiller in a tweet. Quote, With Brightline eating, J.P. lost 135 pounds in 11 months, and then he regained 150 pounds in 8 months. Unquote. Yikes. He'd been on the road for a long time, and then found himself in the ditch, seemingly helpless to get out. He had so many breaks and resumes, it was dizzying, and compounded with the traumas of COVID, he had deep mental health struggles until it seemed like the bright life might no longer be available to him. But one day he turned the corner, and on that day he reached out to share his epiphany with me. Here is the text he sent me. Quote, I'm coming more and more to see the wisdom of the four lines. All of my resumes over the past eight months have been no sugar or flour. You can eat whatever, whenever, how much ever you want, as long as it's not sugar or flour. I'm coming to see how deeply flawed that approach was, at least for me. The meals and quantities lines are important. They act as silencers to the food thoughts slash chatter. My brain says, can I eat now? Is it time to eat? Can we eat? And the meals line says, no, it's not meal time. We don't eat right now. Likewise, my brain hounds me with, can we eat more? Are you sure this is enough? How about a little more? And the quantities line says, no, this is the right amount. 
the amount our body needs, no more, no less. Over time, our brain stops asking us silly questions like, can we eat and how about more, because of the meals and quantities lines. Without those two lines, the food thoughts chatter becomes so strong that eventually the sugar and flour lines are abandoned with little resistance, and thus the merry-go-round of my break, resume, break, resume, break over the past eight months. Unquote. Soon after he sent that text, JP proceeded to bless our Bright Lifers community with a series of essays, aptly named Lessons from the Ditch. Here's what he wrote, along with a list of topics. You can read the full posts at resumebook.com. Quote, Back in October of last year, SPT and I did a vlog entitled Eight Lessons in Eight Months, in which I reflected on my time as a crystal vaser. Now I want to reflect on my time in the ditch. I have learned new lessons and learned them the hard way. Now I want to share them with you. Number one, sometimes you're not ready until you're ready. Number two, up your support and strengthen your program. Number three, be creative and try new things. Number four, recover what worked well in the past. Number five, do the inner work. Number six, deepen your identity and stay close to the mothership. Number seven, all four bright lines are important. Number eight, be kind to yourself. Number nine, don't give up and keep moving forward. And number ten, nothing is wasted in the economy of grace. Unquote. JP's willingness to go public about his weight regain snapped me out of my stupor and made me realize how important it is to shed light on the fact that, yes, in Brightline Eating, too, people sometimes regain weight, and no, that does not mean that everything is ruined and the program doesn't work. It's just another step on the journey of recovery. It's common knowledge that the average person tries to quit smoking multiple times before it sticks. Why would we expect this addiction to be a one-and-done march into the sunshine of perfection? You might be wondering, what makes the difference? What's the sign, the hallmark that might tip you off that you're finally done regaining weight and this resume is going to last? Well, people are different, of course, and there's no one rule of thumb that will apply across the board. But I do notice that JP and I, from my time in Australia, both had the same deep feeling when we finally resumed for good. And that common feeling was fatigue. When you're beyond deeply bone-heavy tired of being beaten up by the food, you're ready to surrender to working the plan one day at a time. And in that state, a new level of honesty will open up so you can face and address whatever wasn't working in the past. Each resume brings us one step closer to working a program that is strong enough to treat whatever level of food addiction we personally have in play. Once we're working that program, permanent freedom comes along for the ride. So there you have it. 
That is the excerpt from Resume, available anywhere books are sold. Go get your copy today. We're hoping it's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Her first two books were, and we have a pretty good hunch that this book will be too. Parasite is a 2019 South Korean black comedy thriller. It's the first film, not in English, to win Best Picture. It's about a poor South Korean family, the Kims, working their way into the lives of a wealthy family, the Parks. By the end of the film, the Park family employs all four of the Kims in different capacities, while remaining unaware that they're related. The film highlights the stark differences between the rich and the poor. It's funny, engaging, and includes twists that no one, not even the most experienced cinephile, would guess. It has elements of romance and traces of intrigue. The acting is top-notch, the score is fantastic, and yet the last ten minutes of the film cast a dark pall over the first two hours. What begins as fun and games turns suddenly and unexpectedly dark. Violence erupts, blood spurts, and you're left wondering whether you're watching a contemporary comedy thriller or a Shakespearean tragedy where all the characters end up dead. Would I recommend it? Yes, I think at the end of the day I would, if you love thrillers and aren't opposed to reading subtitles then this is a good use of your time. But it also raises questions about violence in the media. And to those, we now turn. It's no secret that violence in entertainment media is on the rise. You can hardly watch a TV show or see a movie these days without some kind of violence being displayed graphically in your face. Let's talk about violence, and the first thing that I want to say is I'm going to take a kind of philosophical approach here, and I'm going to end up asking more questions than giving answers. And part of that is because I haven't made up my own mind on this. And the other part of that is because I also want to hear your thoughts. So if you have thoughts on pop culture violence, send an email to shifletcast at gmail.com. Now, it's a lazy argument. Let's start here. Someone accuses you of doing something, and your response is to accuse them of doing the same thing. That's a lazy argument. So when someone says to me, gosh, how can you watch all of that violence on television? It is a lazy argument to turn around and say, well, you watch X, Y, and Z on television, and you have no qualms about it. I have been guilty of this in the past, and I'm trying to get over that, that type of approach and really think through this deeply. Think about what questions come to mind, what things rise to the surface when I think about violence in entertainment media. 
So this came up because I have been watching the television series The Walking Dead. Now, The Walking Dead is about um, the survivors of the zombie apocalypse. And some of the survivors don't end up remaining survivors. They end up getting, um, well, they end up getting eaten. Eaten by the bloodthirsty zombies. And in this television show, there is a lot of violence. Because you have this merry band of survivors. This group of denizens who are trying to continue surviving. They, they're literally, their life is on the line. Something like, we don't get exact numbers in the TV show, but something like 99% of the world's population, you can imagine numbers like that, 99% of the world's population has been zombified. So wherever you go, you have to watch your back. And that involves guns, and that involves blades, and that involves swords, and that involves blunt objects. Because the only way to disable a zombie, the only way to get it off you, to, to flee from it, f fight or flight, right? You either flee or you fight. And if you're going to fight, then you have to inflict on it some kind of traumatic brain injury. That could be stabbing it in the head, that could be slicing its head off with a, a samurai sword, that could be shooting it in the head. Whatever you've got to do, you've got to inflict some traumatic brain injury. And as a result, there is a lot of violence in The Walking Dead. And it's come to a point where I'm beginning to question, should I continue watching it? with so much violence. And as I talked about um, in the past, in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie Parasite, there's a ton of violence as well. Lots of blood, lots of gore. And um, it just raises this question of how much is too much and what is the Christian call, what is the Christian response um, to all of this. It's no secret that violence is on the rise in media. It's no secret. It is. It just is. Look at films and television shows from the 1960s and 70s compared to films and television shows now. Violence is everywhere. Now, it's not it's not literally everywhere. There there is good wholesome content out there. But in relation to its prevalence in the 60s and 70s, it's skyrocketed. It has exploded. So what are we to do? A couple of thoughts. Just a couple of thoughts. Is it Gorn? G-O-R-N. Is it Gorn? What is Gorn? Gorn is uh, a combination of two words, gore, G-O-R-E, and porn, as in pornography. So, is the violence gratuitous? Does it serve no purpose? 
Is it just violence for the sake of pure entertainment? Violence for violence's sake. I think back to some movies called The Purge. The Purge was a series of movies where the basic premise is that for one night a year, something like 12 hours, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., all crime, including murder, is legalized. For 12 hours each year, all crime, including murder, is legalized. And these films follow, typically they follow people who are just trying to survive the night. It's it's another kind of survivalist. Um, it's it's the Walking Dead in a different universe. Um, except in this universe, it's twelve hours, and you've got to survive the neighbor that has a grudge against you. Who um, now all of a sudden, because he has no moral conscience, is going to come and kill you and your wife and your family. I would say that the Purge movies are gorn. They're pornography when it comes to gore. Um, There's no reason for the violence. It's strictly gratuitous. It is... um, It's just too much. And it serves no purpose. It's violence for the sake of violence. The second consideration that I have, is it implied or is it shown graphically because violence can be implied um violence is in the bible violence is one of the results of sin um there's violence up and down throughout the bible but it's not shown graphically it is text in a written word Whereas the TV and film media that we have nowadays is, it's in your face. It's on full display. If the Bible says, um, the, the verse that comes to mind is, uh, something like 300 Philistines getting their foreskins cut off and, um, uh, those being kind of a trophy for victory in war or something like that. Um, I don't know why that image came to mind, but it did. So that's like one verse, text on a page, versus, um, yeah, versus the purge. People getting killed for eight hours versus... The Walking Dead, zombies, reanimated corpses, once humans, getting shanked, getting beheaded, getting stabbed, getting shot. It's just different. There's a difference between the violence implied and the violence shown, showed, shown, graphically be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
This is what St. Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And St. Paul again, very succinctly, seek things above. Seek things above. So my third consideration, my first was, is it Gorn? Is the violence gratuitous? My second was, is it implied or shown graphically? And my third is custody of the eyes. Custody of the eyes. There is this question. I think the question, most fundamentally, what people want to know is, what I want to know is, is it a sin? Is it a sin to watch or consume graphic, gratuitous violence? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not a moral theologian. Um, I took a class on moral theology, but we didn't get to the section on pop culture violence. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure. It's out, outside of my area of expertise. But the question, is it a sin? At the root of that question could be, I'm not saying it is, but could be a kind of minimalism. What is the least that I need to do to be saved? What are the things, what, 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 what do I have to avoid to just slip into heaven. You know? I don't know why this comes to mind, but it does. On the other hand, we should be doing the maximum. Maybe it's not a sin. Maybe it's not maybe it's a venial sin. Maybe it's not a mortal sin. But we and maybe it's not a venial sin. Like I said, I'm not a moral theologian. I'm not I'm curious to hear your thoughts. But don't settle for the minimalist approach. Don't settle for the minimum. Go for the maximum. Custody of the eyes. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God and seek things above. What I can say is that excessive violence is numbing. We become numb to it um, to the point where it doesn't phase us. We don't have a strong reaction. And um, this is deleterious for the soul. Violence is a result of sin. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1869, paragraph 1869 says, Thus sin makes men accomplices of one another and causes three things. Concupiscence, violence, and injustice to reign among them. Concupiscence, violence, and injustice. If we become numb to violence... 
The next step is becoming numb to sin, having it not affect us in a way that we're repulsed by it, in a, in a kind of healthy way, where we don't want to sin because we love God, where, where we just, it just, yeah, we become numb. Excessive violence is numbing, and that's, that is harmful, that is dangerous for the soul. So those are my considerations on pop culture violence. Okay, we are at the end of a very long episode, and so I am going to keep this Harry Potter segment brief. We have two chapters to get through today. <laughs> it's going to be brief, and yet we're doing two chapters. Chapter 5, Diagon Alley, and Chapter 6, The Journey from Platform 9 and 3 Quarters. First, a summary, courtesy of sparknotes.com. Chapter 5. Harry wakes up in the company of Hagrid and realizes that the preceding night was not a dream. The two set off to London to shop for Harry's school supplies. Harry is concerned about the money required, but Hagrid assures him that his parents left behind plenty of funds for him at Gringotts, the wizard's bank run by goblins. Their first stop is London. Their first stop in London is at the Leaky Cauldron, a pub where all the patrons recognize Harry and are both nervous and honored to have the opportunity to meet him. They head out to the street where Hagrid taps on a brick wall, and a small street called Diagon Alley opens before them. Hagrid explains that Harry will buy what he needs for school here. They go to Gringotts, where they are escorted down to Harry's safe. Inside, they view the piles of silver and gold that Harry's parents left him. Hagrid explains the complex wizard monetary system, which is composed of galleons, sickles, and nuts. Hagrid fills a small bag with money. He then takes Harry to another vault, number 713, which is empty except for a grubby little package that Hagrid picks up and hides in his clothes, warning Harry not to ask about it. Hagrid then takes Harry to be fitted for his uniform. In the store, he encounters a snobbish and unlikable boy who will also be starting Hogwarts in the fall. The snobbish boy talks highly about grand old wizard families, and Harry begins to worry about whether he is cut out to be a wizard. But Hagrid reassures Harry, telling him that he will learn all he needs to know and that there, will be, there are many muggle students at Hogwarts. After buying the required books and ingredients for potions, Hagrid and Harry then head to the wand store. Mr. Ollivander, the store owner, makes Harry try a number of magic wands, telling him that it will be clear when he has the right one. Harry tries out many wands. Finally, he picks up one made of holly and phoenix feather 
and sparks shoot out from it. This is clearly the right wand. Ollivander tells Harry that the only other wand containing feathers from the same phoenix belonged to Voldemort, and had been used to give Harry his lightning bolt forehead scar. Chapter 6 Harry's last month with the Dursleys is unpleasant. The day before he is due to leave, Harry asks Uncle Vernon to take him to the train station. Uncle Vernon agrees to take him, but ridicules him for saying he is to leave from track nine and three quarters, as is marked on the ticket Hagrid gave him. The following day, Harry arrives at the station and stands between tracks nine and ten, wondering with increasing alarm how to find track nine and three quarters. Finally, he overhears some people mention Hogwarts. It is a family of red-haired children who seem to be bound for the academy. He asks the mother for help, and she tells him to walk through the barrier between tracks 9 and 10. Harry does so, and he is astonished to find the train to Hogwarts on the other side. Harry boards it. On the train, Harry is introduced to Fred and George Weasley twins who are returning to school, and to their brother, Ron, another student who will be starting at Hogwarts. Ron introduces Harry to such details of wizard life as Quidditch, a game a bit like soccer but played on broomsticks, famous witches and wizards cards, collectible items like baseball cards, and every flavor beans. One of the cards bears the picture of Albus Dumbledore. Ron, who comes from a poor family, cannot afford the pastries sold on the train, so Harry buys a lot with his newfound wealth and shares them with Ron. Harry also meets a somewhat annoying, overachieving girl named Hermione Granger and sees again the unpleasant boy from the uniform shop, whose name is Draco Malfoy. All the students have heard of Harry, and Harry is not sure how to respond to his fame. Arriving at the station, the newcomers are led onto boats in which they sail to the castle of Hogwarts. Two things come to mind when I read these chapters. The first has to do with the fact that you don't choose the wand, the wand chooses you. And there's a parallel that can be uh, drawn to charisms. Charisms are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to a particular person for the benefit of the church. So when you think of religious orders like the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Servites, the Norbertines, each religious order has its own charism. The founder of that religious order received a gift from God to share with the church. That gift is multiplied. For example, the Norbertines, that is the order of pre-monstratensions, founded by St. Norbert. Their charism, as far as I understand it, is the public and reverent celebration of the sacred liturgy. The public and reverent celebration of the sacred liturgy. This was a gift that God gave to Norbert, 
to his first canon's regular. And that gift has been multiplying and 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 benefiting the church and and gracing the church and um, just transforming the people around the Norbertines. You don't choose your charism. You don't say, I want this gift from God. No, God is the one who chooses what gifts to give and what gifts to hold back. You don't choose the wand, the wand chooses you. Now, there's not an exact parallel. It's not like you don't choose the charism, the charism chooses you. But God gives the charisms. God is the giver of the gifts. And while I'm on that subject, in my own prayer, I always have to remind myself, am I seeking the gifts or am I seeking God? Am I seeking the gifts or am I seeking the giver? If I'm seeking the giver, then the gifts become clear. If I'm seeking the gifts, then I'm blinded by my own ambition. That's the first thing. That uh, is my reflection for chapter 5. My reflection for chapter 6 comes from a book. And this book is called The Gospel According to Harry Potter by Connie Neal. And she makes this point. Just as Harry believed in what he could not see, that is, um, so the, the quote from Mrs. Weasley is, quote, all you have to do is walk straight at the barrier between platforms 9 and 10. Best do it at a bit of a run if you're nervous, unquote. Pardon my terrible British accent. All you have to do is walk straight at the barrier between platforms 9 and 10. So, just as Harry believed in what he could not see and was prompted to obey even odd-sounding instructions, likewise those who believe in God's word will obey it and will follow the path of those who went before us into God's kingdom we see the connection between obeying the instructions in this natural world and entering into a realm where supernatural power becomes suddenly available. This is a beautiful insight. This is a beautiful insight. We obey instructions in the natural world and then we enter into a realm where supernatural power becomes suddenly available. I don't think... I don't think that Connie Neal is Catholic. But there's an even deeper sense if you think of the sacramental life. In the sacraments, what do you have? You have matter and form. You have some kind of matter for each sacrament. So let's take the Eucharist as an example. The matter is bread and wine. Unleavened eat. Uh, or leavened, leavened or unleavened, depending on which church sui juris you're a part of. Um, but wheat bread and grape wine, that is the matter. And then you have the form. 
you have the words of the priest at the consecration. Um, you have the, the calling down of the Holy Spirit, the epiclesis, and then you have the words of consecration. When the priest prays those words, when he obeys Holy Mother Church and prays those words, something happens. Something happens. Something changes. This is my body, and it becomes Christ's body. This is my blood, and it becomes Christ's blood. I absolve you, and the penitent's sins are forgiven. I baptize you, and the baby is made whole. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and 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 baptism is is deepened and completed. Initiation is completed. And all the priest has to do is to do what the church intends, to say the words and to intend to do what the church does. And as Connie Neal says, we enter into a realm where supernatural power becomes suddenly available. Things change when we obey. Things change when we obey and when we do what we're told. <laughs> that sounds weird to phrase it like that. But you understand what I'm saying. At the words of the priest, something happens. The priest is obeying the church. Holy Mother Church gives us Jesus gives us these sacraments. The church safeguards them. And um yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And the show is over. Hallelujah. 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 For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. All right, you can stop now. This episode is over. And um, Friday's episode is going to be a blast. It's going to be all about Harry Potter. And more specifically, all about Severus Snape. If you're curious about Severus Snape and my thoughts on him, ooh, I'm going to have a quick take for you. Stick around. Catch you on Friday. Wizards Theme Stock Media, provided by Adam Monroe and Pond5. Shifflet is available on all major podcasting platforms and is recorded and produced by Philip J. Shifflet. Copyright 2021. Until next time, friends, be a saint.
Saul said to David, Look, I will give you my oldest daughter, Mirav, in marriage if you become my warrior and fight the battles of the Lord. Saul thought, I will not lay a hand on him. Let the hand of the Philistines strike him. But David answered Saul, Who am I? And who are my kindred or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? But when the time came for Saul's daughter Mirav to be given to David, she was given as wife to Adriel the Maholathite instead. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David. When this was reported to Saul, he was pleased. He thought, I will offer her to him as a trap, so that the hand of the Philistines may strike him. So for the second time Saul said to David, You shall become my son-in-law today. Saul then ordered his servants, Speak to David privately and say, The king favors you, and all his officers love you. You should become son-in-law to the king. But when Saul's servants mentioned this to David, he said, Is becoming the king's son-in-law a trivial matter in your eyes? I am poor and insignificant. When his servants reported David's answer to him, Saul commanded them, Say this to David, The king desires no other price for the bride than the foreskins of one hundred Philistines, that he may thus take vengeance on his enemies. Saul intended to have David fall into the hands of the Philistines. When the servants reported this offer to David, he was pleased with the prospect of becoming the king's son-in-law. Before the year was up, David arose and went with his men and slew 200 Philistines. He brought back their foreskins and counted them out before the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him his daughter Michael as wife. Then Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and that his own daughter Michael loved David. So Saul feared David all the more, and was his enemy ever after.